God knew all along that his people would fail to fully take the land. In the book of Deuteronomy, God tells Moses that he knew that his people would fail in the conquest before they even entered, he tells him. He knew it was going to happen. And so this land was always about, in the end, another land. Welcome to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Our new series in the book of Judges is called, If You Want to Get God, You've Got to Get Over Yourself. We're taking a look at Judges chapter 1. This is part 2 of a study we're calling No Compromise. Josh Moody is senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and I'm Todd Busteed. Uh, Josh, early parts of our study in Judges, and we're already categorizing the Judges as rescuers mm-hmm. of sort. And then we have the comparison in our opener uh, of this land to another land. So is this yet another example of how the Old Testament, regardless of the book, can eventually be connected to the gospel? What it is, it, it preaches the gospel, the Old Testament. The, the, old, the old Testament are the scriptures of Jesus, They're the scriptures of the New Testament church. So the Old Testament, without having to do hermeneutical gymnastics, the Old Testament is intended to preach the gospel, is intended to lead us to Christ. And yes, indeed, yeah, Joshua does, uh, the book of Judges does that for sure. All right, so once again, this is part two of our initial message in this series. So we're going to ask your indulgence as we head back 13 years to a recording that might have a few challenges to it, but it will improve as we move forward. Judges chapter one, no compromise. Here's Josh. Well, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Judges. It's in the Old Testament. Judges has three very unequal sections to it as a whole. There is the middle section, where the story of the 12 judges is told. Then there is the conclusion, a briefer section of the book of Judges, where the summary of the book is written. Then there is the introduction, again, a briefer uh, section of the book, from the beginning until chapter 3, verse 6. And that's obviously where we are this morning, in the middle of that introduction. And so the great truth that the book of Judges wants to teach us, and this introduces for us, is that God wants the best for you, but that you need to go and take it. First, God wants us to be happy, but to be happy, you need to be holy. While the land was flowing with milk and honey, It was a prosperous and wonderful piece of territory. It was God's best possible gift to his people. And they were going to live in houses, they were told, that they had not built. They had not sweated over them. They had put in no sweat equity. It had not cost them anything. They were going to live in mansions they had not built. And they were told they would eat grapes from vineyards that they had not planted. It was an incredible, fabulous, fantastic gift from the loving heart of God to his people. Yet, verse 2 of our chapter 5, you have disobeyed me. Second, God wants us to be successful, but to be successful, we need to be faithful. Success uh, for some people means worldly success, but the kind of success that God wants for us is better than that, the best by far. He wants us to enter the land to drive back our enemies, to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Third, God wants us to have significance. But to have significance, we need to be submissive to his covenant. 
Our happiness will come from our holiness. Our success from our faithfulness to the Great Commission. To reach out to college student. I know college students can be rather off-putting. They can be rude and seem arrogant. They swan in like they own the place. And they put no money in the, in the offering plate or a few dollars. I mean, come on! College student, as much as homeless man, as much as businessman who thinks he's so great, as much as families with all their children that scream in the middle of services, like our children sometimes do. Success will come from our faithfulness to that great commission. Our significance will come as we submit to Christ and his word and let him have his way among us. But I also do want to apply all this individually too. For though we are a body, we are a body of individuals, each of whom must stand before Jesus by him or herself. And so this next application is particularly relevant to us as individuals. And here it is, and it's somewhat unnerving. Are you ready? Fourth, God wants us to be rich, but to be rich we need to be generous. Now before you all get up and walk out the door... I think I've completely uh, lost my mind. Uh, Let me explain what I'm saying. I'm talking about being rich spiritually, right? I come from a country where there is great suspicion about uh, TV, preachers, always wanting your money. You know, uh, give us uh, $5 and you'll have 50 back and, you know, the guy is driving around in his Cadillac, right? But you see, you need to look at this in the right kind of way. God does want us to be rich, It's just that our standards of what wealth or prosperity really are are laughably small and pathetic. We think a BMW will make us rich. God knows better. You can be impoverished with leather seats and a surround sound stereo and you can be rich in a second-hand hatchback, you know? In the book of Revelation, God puts it like this. You say, I am rich... I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. We we think we're rich because we have money. But if we have money but have not God, we are poor indeed according to the word. But if we are poor and we're struggling to to rub together enough pennies for for a piece of bread or, 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 or a cup of soup or something like that, we are poor with money. But we have God. Well, we're rich beyond all measure. Well, in contrast, the prosperity gospel teaches you that God wants you to be physically rich. And there are so many things wrong with that, we don't need to get into all of it. But for here, in this passage, what they forget is that the Old Testament church was a theocracy. In other words, it was a place where God ruled, in attention at least, over the political and military establishment of the nation of Israel. God's church was a nation state. 
in the Old Testament. It was a theocracy. Whereas the New Testament church is a people from all nations, distinct from the nation state, and whose promises of this land are fulfilled in our relationship with God now and in heaven hereafter. In fact, that was always going to be the case. The Old Testament land was only ever ultimately intended to teach us about the real land to come of Christ and the church and heaven. God knew all along that his people would fail to fully take the land. In the book of Deuteronomy, God tells Moses that he knew that his people would fail in the conquest before they even entered, he tells him. He knew it was going to happen. And so this land was always about, in the end, another land. Just as the king to come, and there's many times in this book where it talks about there was no king yet. The king to come was about another king, the Lord Jesus. And so the land here, the prosperity of a land flowing with milk and honey is a land of blessing far more than that. As Jesus said, it is more blessed to give generous than to receive. Now I say this as acute personal application, for if there is any idol that the Western church needs more clearly to get rid of than the idol of mammon and things and money and possessions, I for one cannot think of it. There's nothing wrong with money itself. It's where you put it that counts. See? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus said. It's a mistake not to use the resources that God has given you for this kingdom. God wants you to invest those talents. He wants us to invest in heaven, in the salvation of souls, and the building of his kingdom. But we are not to adore money itself, not to hoard it for ourselves but to use it for the greater purpose to which we are called. And there is, a, there is in that a, a, a fantastic challenge to all of our lives in this materialistic world in which we live, isn't there? We're bombarded with the notion that you've got to get it and keep it. Whatever you do, hold on to that stash. And of course where that comes from is from people who don't believe that there is a heaven. And there is a bank which can never go down with a Wall Street crash. So hold on to it with all your might, not knowing that it will sift through your fingers like sand in time to come. But we are not to be like that. We're to use money for spiritual purposes, for God's kingdom. And so the strange truth is that the more we grow in generosity, the more we are generous, the more we experience the real blessing of a rich relationship with God. Josh has one more truth from our intro look at the book of Judges coming up momentarily. But first, wanted to invite you to visit our website, GodCenteredLife.org, where we're collecting resources designed to help you grow in your devotional life. We'll tell you more about what's there in just a few minutes. Right now, though, let's find out what that final truth is from our intro look at the book of Judges. Here's Josh. Fifth and finally, God wants us to have salvation, but to have salvation, we need to have faith. 
Now, of course, this passage is a call to obedience, yet you have not obeyed, it's there, but that obedience is an expression of a prior faith. And you can see this in the very startling and strange comment of verse 19 of chapter 1. If you go back there with me, we spent most of the time in chapter 2, but we've referred to chapter 1 a few times. And here's one verse where it's very significant, verse 19 of chapter 1. You see, what are we told there? We're told that they uh, took possession of the hill country, but they couldn't drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. Huh? Really? Are we saying that God was unable to drive out the people he had promised to drive out because they had developed a new military technology? Is the Almighty to be stumped by iron chariots? Is the latest in late Bronze Age hardware going to turn over God's plans? Not at all. In fact, they have already been promised in uh, Joshua 17, verse 18, that though their enemies have chariots, yet God will defeat them. A little later in this book of Judges, we find that uh, Deborah is victorious in her campaign for God, despite the chariots that this verse 19 says put such a stop to the efforts of the people. No, it was not a question of the physical possibility of beating chariots for God omnipotent, but of the attitude to these chariots that God's people developed. In other words, they came to a place where they did not believe that God could overcome the iron chariots. Uh, a classic example of this dilemma from the New Testament is the story of Peter walking on the water. He's uh, called out by Jesus, isn't he? He sees Jesus walking on the water and Peter wants to meet his Lord and so ever forward Peter runs, gets out of the boat as quick as he can and begins to walk towards Jesus. Peter begins to look at the waves rather than his master and so he starts to sink and Jesus has to reach out to stop him from drowning. Grasp him by the hand, took his eyes off the Lord and started looking at the waves. Well, they were looking at the iron chariots and not at God. <laughs> if they had spent some time in devotional contemplation of the one who threw the stars into space, who made the universe at his word? Well, they would have known that God's word to drive out the nations, even if their enemies had iron chariots, was still good. And nothing could stop God from doing what he had planned. But they were not contemplating God, they were contemplating the iron chariots. Now, I don't know about you, but this is so often the case in church life, is it not? We look at something or other that we sense that God might want us to do. And then we wonder and we think, can we do it? Is it possible? Do they have iron chariots? You know? Do we have the resources? And of course, we must be wise with such matters and not rush in where angels fear to tread. But the real question of wisdom is not, can we? But does God want us to do this? For where God calls, he always equips. Such a common phenomenon in church life. Oh, they've got iron chariots. Hey, we can't do it anymore. God omnipotent, guys, you know. 
Another illustration may help. It, perhaps it's a bit like a, a sports team that is doing very badly and they seem to be getting nowhere and suddenly they get a new coach and he instills confidence and certainty and they become assured of their victory and their results begin to turn around. They are the same team but they are confident in the new coach's techniques and they begin to believe that they will do well and the combination of their training, their new strategy and, and overwhelmingly their certainty that they will now win begins to make them unbeatable. It happens, doesn't it, in, in sporting life? More, on more than one occasion it's happened, hasn't it? And so we need to have confidence in our coach. Have faith the Lord can overcome our iron chariots. Look at it like this. Sometimes people think they uh, cannot become a Christian because they have sin in their lives. They're waiting to clean up their life before they come to Christ. It's precisely the other way around. We need to repent of our sin. But then in all sorrow, take that sin to the cross and let Jesus deal with it. We might receive him in our hearts and so have his spirit within us to enable us to beat those iron chariots. We need to enter by faith and then we need to walk by faith too. Why have you done this? He asks. His intention is to bless. God's blessings are above all others. He has everything we could ever need or want. He has bounteous supplies from heaven. He will take care of your needs. Take your worries to him. Take your concerns to him. God's blessings are better than anything. They are the best. And the greatest blessing of them all is this. God himself. For those who will not only enter the land, but determined by faith to fight the good fight, of taking possession, to, to walk in holiness, faithfulness, submission, generosity, to walk by faith. They, you, if you follow God's word, you will experience joy, happiness, joy even more, blessing, the richness of the divine Presence. The significance of a son or daughter of the living God and salvation now and forevermore. Well, Elizabeth Bennett turned down Mr. Darcy's proposal, and you can hardly blame her. He was rather proud, but she was also prejudiced. In time to come, they'd get things straight. He'd loosen up. She would get to see his softer side and began to realize that she was really in love with him. And the proposal, when it came a second time, would now be happily accepted. And so as we go through this book of Judges, we will find God coming back time and again to his people, 
sending them judges, or as we'll see, perhaps better called saviors, to rescue them from the pickle they've got themselves into. It's not about all the depression of them failing. It is about the wonderful saviour that God sends, ultimately, of course, in Christ. It's a book about a cycle that must be broken. As God's New Testament people, we have the Spirit within us, and we have Christ revealed for us. He is our King. And he is calling us to conquer the land before us. To not be satisfied with having entered. But to take the next step. That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. Josh, you talk about iron chariots and the mistake of looking at iron chariots and not at God. So, what are our iron chariots today? That's a great question, Todd. And I think it is important to ask that because otherwise it can seem like it's a museum piece, you know, these iron chariots in the mm-hmm. past. Obviously, we shouldn't be frightened of them, but what kind of things could possibly scare us and uh, prevent us from following God's commands? I suppose it could be applied differently in different life situations. I, I think of the person who has a call to the mission field but cannot get their mind around how God would ever provide them with enough money. Oh, no, God can overcome that. Hmm. That's not what's important. What's important is what does he want you to do? Or perhaps uh, the church that has an opportunity for expansion or um, a church plant or something, and they're thinking to themselves, we don't have the resources for that, we can't do it. But that's not really the question, uh, because God is almighty. The question is never about the iron chariots. What about a job situation that forces us to compromise our Christian beliefs yeah. if we're going to stay there? Well, that's another yeah, a great example. Let's put it into the working world. Say you're in a working situation and uh, they're asking you to uh, sign a document or agree to some moral norm that you cannot agree to. And you know if you put your foot down and refuse, you could lose your job. And how will you provide for your family? But you know it's the right thing to do. Are you going to be frightened of the iron chariots or are you going to stand on God's promises? So so it it can make it, it can become very real quickly. Hmm. Um, But this perspective that however technologically advanced may be the enemy, Hmm. we have a God who is above all those kind of human machinations. Now you conclude by saying, he is calling us to conquer the land before us. Hmm. What is our land? Hmm. Well, I suppose in one sense it's the same for all of us in that the land is the advance of the kingdom of God that is finalized in the new heaven, the new earth. So what does that mean? Well, it depends what your situation is, exactly what the advance of the kingdom of God might be. But to tell people about Jesus, do evangelism, to build the church, to stand up for Jesus at work, these are all ways uh, that the kingdom is advanced, and we need uh, the courage and the strength to trust that God is able to use us today to advance the kingdom of God and not, and not buy into this narrative that somehow uh, the forces of secularization that the West is facing today are, cannot be defeated by God. Of course they can. Uh, these iron chariots that threaten us. Hmm. And no, let's not look at them. Let's look at the Lord 
and keep moving forward. Fantastic challenge to wrap up today. Thank you for that, Josh. Just enough time to remind you that GodCenteredLife.org is where we're collecting resources that we hope will be helpful in you developing your devotional life. Check it out. If you're able to partner with us, we'll be glad to send you an intriguing book by Alistair McGrath. More information on our website, GodCenteredLife.org. Next time we get together, is it contagious? I am not expecting you to believe in God just because your parents did. Faith is not like a virus that can be caught just by hanging out with other Christians. You can get the flu that way, but you cannot get Christianity. We'll continue our study of the book of Judges when we get together next time. GodCenteredLife.org, devotional resources for you. And this is your invitation to join us for the next edition of The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Josh Moody.